So for those of you guys that haven't been doing a million of these web conferences, um, you know, we're, Mike and I are gonna do the presentation, Mike Vile and I, I'm Jason Gross, for those of you who don't know me, I see a couple familiar faces on the line, but I shouldn't assume you all know who I am. Um, there's a chat feature in GoToMeeting, and if you click at the top, there's a little chat box, top right-hand corner of your screen. And um, I would suggest that if you're not speaking, you keep your mic on mute. That uh, just makes it easier for everybody else because we don't hear your kids or your dog or the lawnmower or whatever. Um, but Mike and I love questions. So if you have a question, probably the best thing to do is to type it into the chat feature and some folks are joining by phone. They're, they're not uh, doing the video conference. So as Mike and I take those questions, we'll repeat the question for the folks that are on the phone. Um, and, and then for folks that are on the phone that can't use the chat feature, you'll just have to unmute yourself and ask the question, and that's totally fine. But for those of you that are using the video conference, the chat feature is the best way to get your questions answered. So I see Mike just joined and it's 11.30. So Mike, you put, you put on a suit, look at you. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I was trying to look respectable. I was kind of hoping you'd be wearing your uh, air traffic controller headphones today and I could make fun of you for it, but, uh, but no luck. No, I borrowed a webcam from, uh, from a friend because my, okay. my air traffic controller headphones weren't all that reliable. Oh, I see Marshall too, wow. So guys, let me let me give you, so I'm Jason Gross. Um, Mike Vile is the guy who was just making fun of my headphones. Um, we're your presenters today. We're gonna try to cover a lot of ground. As I was saying um, earlier, if, if you're not speaking, try to keep your microphone on mute. It just prevents us from hearing your kids or your dog or the lawnmower next door or whatever. Um, and then of course, um, if, you ask a question using the chat feature, we will repeat it for the folks that have joined by telephone. And for folks that have joined by telephone, if you have a question, just unmute yourself, ask the question. We love questions. Um, let me give you a, a quick outline of what we're gonna go through. So I, Mike, correct me if this is wrong. We're, we're, Mike and I are both licensed in Oregon and Washington. We both represent HOAs and condos in both states. Mike, I think, is also uh, licensed in Utah as well. I'm uh, Arizona. Arizona, sorry. Yes. Um, we're not so, talking about Arizona today. So here are the things we're going to try to cover. Um, the first thing we're going to try to cover, because Mike and I have gotten a million questions about this, is how the heck do we conduct business? How the heck do we conduct meetings in light of, the, of Governor Brown and Governor Inslee's stay-at-home orders? So that's the first thing. We're going to talk brief, and, and I'm going to do Oregon, Mike's going to do Washington. We're gonna talk briefly about closure of common areas and recreational facilities. Um, we won't spend a lot of time on that because it's pretty obvious. Most of that stuff is supposed to be closed under the governor's order. We can talk about some weird one-off cases if you want. Um, then um, we're gonna talk about maintenance and repair work. You know, Can my construction project continue during this time? And by the way, this is an area where the Oregon and Washington answers are a little different. Um, then we're going to talk about what do we do if someone in the community contracts the virus. And then finally, we're going to talk about how you communicate with your owners um, during this time. Did I miss anything, Mike? No, I, I think that pretty well covers it. Uh, in terms of other technical issues, though, 
we're using this GoToMeeting system, and this might be a little bit different than the uh, Zoom system or the Skype system that you're used to using, but uh, it's, it's pretty similar in most ways. In terms of controls, you see you've got uh, four buttons down at the uh, bottom of your screen there uh, to turn your microphone on, your camera on or off. And uh, so if, you, if we can't see you, uh, and there's a lot of people we can't see here, like uh, April. Uh, April Carroll, I can't see you. I don't know what you're doing. Uh, if you want us to be able to see you, then go ahead and turn on your microphone. Uh, we're not going to make fun of you. Uh, well, actually, we might. It kind of depends on what you're wearing. So uh, I guess use your best judgment there. Um, well, one thing's for sure. I'm going to get made fun of. Yes. Uh, and that's uh, I'm an easy target. <laughs> yeah, as far as the microphone goes, as Jason was saying, if you've got anything going on in the background, go ahead and click that microphone so it uh, so it turns red, so you're you're muted. If you want to control who you're seeing, there's a button up at the top of the screen in the middle that says view everybody. That's the default. You can switch that to just view who's talking or just view the people whose cameras are on. And so, uh, however you feel comfortable doing that, you can you can change that setting as well. All right. And as we go through this presentation, um, there are a couple of useful web links that I'll share just using the chat feature. And if one of you doesn't have access to the chat feature, just send me an email. Um, I'll put in my email right now. And uh, I can email it to you. So let's and, start well, with that's, that's, well, say that's a good, uh, another good one to point out, Jason. Yeah, the chat feature is the, uh, the little talk bubble in the uh, upper right-hand corner of your screen. You can click on that and then enter a message and anybody who's logged into the chat will see it. Uh, I'm gonna have it up the whole time and we can, uh, uh, we can answer questions either as they come in or maybe we can deal with all of them later. We'll just kind of have to see how it goes. And my apologies, I'm a little, uh, a little wired today. I've, I'm already on my third cup of bleach. <laughs> uh, okay. So, so, uh, in that... so Jason, in terms, of, uh, in terms of order here, I think it would probably make sense to start with Oregon. There's a little bit less to talk about in Oregon in terms of the governor's orders. Uh, governor Brown really just has the, the one main order there. Uh, governor Inslee's been a, a little bit more verbose in terms of putting out guidance. And so if you wanna, if you wanna hit the, uh, the Oregon side of things in terms of uh, either the meeting portion or what people are compelled to do uh, in terms of social distancing, why don't you go ahead with that and then I'll I'll address the uh, the differences in Washington. Sure. So I just uh, put in a link in the chat feature to Governor Brown's stay home, stay safe order for all of you that want to read it. And there are some sections particularly relevant to closure of common areas and recreational facilities. We'll get to that. So for years, Mike and I and the other lawyers at our firm have been talking to you guys, sermonizing, if you will, about the open means requirement and how, whether it's a board meeting or an owner's meeting, you have to meet in a properly noticed open meeting with advance notice to the owners. They don't have to show up, but you got to give them enough information that they can show up and observe the substantive deliberations of the board, not just the motion, but the actual debate. Now, in and, and in Oregon, it's essentially the same rule for a condominium association as it is for a planned community, right? So in Oregon, you have board meetings, and you have owner's meetings, right? Board meeting is your regular meeting, the board votes, the board makes decisions, the board makes motions. The owners are invited to attend and observe, obviously, but at a board, making, at a board meeting, the board makes decisions. Then you have owner's meetings, right? 
most of you, the owner's meeting that you have every year is your annual meeting. And at that meeting, any owner can make a motion. It's an owner vote. And that makes sense if you think about it because the owners have to vote to elect directors. Now the rule is a little, the, the statutes are a little different for board meetings than for owner meetings. So for board meetings, many of you know that there is an emergency clause. And the emergency clause says you can't meet telephonically. And we assume that also means you can't meet via video conference, except in case of emergency. And for years, people have said, Jason, Mike, what's an emergency? And I have said an emergency in a community association is fire, flood, blood, or litigation, right? It's easy to remember, fire, flood, blood, or litigation. In other words, an emergency is a situation faced by your association that requires an immediate decision from the board. And the statute, with regard to board meetings, both statutes, say that in a true emergency, you can meet telephonically, you can meet without notice to the owners, right? Now, this situation, you know, none of us, as long as the governor's order has been in place, we have a statewide emergency and it's a public health emergency. Typical emergency situation for an association would be, you know, there's a fire and you have to call a restoration contractor or a tree falls on the building and you have to have a board meeting to make a decision about who's gonna do temporary repairs to the roof. This is not an emergency situation for your HOA this is a society-wide public health emergency. So the advice we've been giving about board meetings is, yes, while the governor's stay-at-home order is in place, you should and you can meet telephonically or via Zoom. But since you're not making an emergency decision, you wanna go to lengths to invite and allow the attendance of the owners, right? So technically, if emergency means society-wide emergency, you can meet without notice to the owners. But I wouldn't do that because you might make some decision and that owner might challenge the decision and ask a court to reverse the decision that you made. And I think the spirit of the open meetings requirement is that owners should be allowed to attend and observe your discussions. And since the tree hasn't fallen on the building and there's no fire um, and we have the ability to send a Zoom link to everybody, we should, okay? So that's board meetings. Now, owner meetings, and then Mike will handle Washington. Owner meetings are kind of a different story. Most of you uh, have, have had or will soon have your annual meeting. The Condo Act and the Planned Community Act require you to have an annual meeting, but there's no emergency clause. There's no parallel emergency clause in the owner meeting section like there is in the board meeting section. So the statutes neither specifically authorize nor specifically prohibit you from meeting telephonically or meeting via Zoom. Zoom, we'll just use Zoom as shorthand for video conference. So none of us really know the answer to whether you can have an annual meeting via Zoom. But here's what I think. I think that if you're making, if all you're doing is electing a board of directors and adopting your tax resolution, which we all do every year, then I think it's fine to do it via Zoom. I think when you call the meeting to order, you should immediately have a motion made to allow attendance and voting via Zoom in light of the governor's stay home, stay safe order. But I don't think you should conduct 
any other business at the meeting, especially controversial business, right, other than electing directors and adopting your tax resolution, because there's a mechanism in both statutes to do a vote by written ballot in lieu of a meeting. And that mechanism says, if you have to have an owner vote to authorize a capital improvement, if you have to have an owner vote to amend your bylaws, you can do that via written ballot and not have a meeting. But that clause says that you can't elect directors using vote by written ballot in lieu of a meeting. And that's why I think that a court would say, you know, if you can't use that mechanism to elect directors and the governor has ordered everybody to stay at home, then you really do have to have a Zoom meeting and it's probably authorized. So the, the big advice here is have the motion to allow attendance and voting via Zoom. Um, elect your board, um, do your tax resolution, but these more controversial issues, amendments, capital improvements, those sorts of votes, I would do that by written ballot in lieu of a meeting during this time. Okay, Mike, you wanna talk about Washington a little bit? Or do you want to yeah, disagree with me? I know, no, I know you're waiting to disagree with me. I, I don't want to disagree with you, I, but I do kind of want to drill down on that last issue that you're talking about. Um, so I think to me, the key language in Oregon is this requirement or this definition in the both the Condominium Act and the Public Community Act that unit owners be present in person or by proxy to be counted, by, counted for quorum. And, and so the big question is, what does it mean to be present in person or by proxy? And, and by and the way, Rhonda asked that exact question, so I'm glad you're oh, covering it. Okay, and so in Oregon, we don't know the answer to that question. In Washington, we do know the answer to that question now, and that's kind of my little segue here. So uh, Washington has made it clear that attendance via telephonic communications uh, or video conference counts as being present in person or by proxy. Uh, it sounds like we got a little bit of feedback here. Is that on my end? Yeah, I hear it too. Okay, I'll hopefully it goes away here in a minute. So, uh, Governor Inslee's latest proclamation, uh, that's what we're, we're calling these executive orders, addresses this very issue. And the, the proclamation question here, I'm going to go ahead and bring it up on my, uh, on my computer in just a, a moment after we talk about the, the high points so you guys can see it. But it addresses a few issues that I want to run through real quick that, uh, that aren't addressed in Oregon at all. So under this order, Governor Inslee has essentially uh, stricken out some language from the Washington Nonprofit Corporations Act, which is the, the set of laws that governs a lot of how associations operate in Washington. And the, the first change that was made uh, to RCW 2403-0852 specifically authorizes voting electronically, even if that issue isn't addressed in the Articles of Incorporation or, or bylaws. So historically in Washington, we've had to tell people unless your articles of incorporation or bylaws allow electronic voting, then you probably can't do it. Well, now you absolutely can do it. So if there's a matter that the owners need to vote on, they can vote electronically, full stop. It doesn't matter what the articles of incorporation or the bylaws say. Um, now that doesn't just go for things like amendments. The governor's order also amends the section of the Nonprofit Corporations Act that talks about the election of directors. 
and it specifically allows for the election of, of directors by electronic vote. This order uh, addresses a few other things as well. So uh, it also addresses the participation uh, in meetings, the, the method by which owners can participate in meetings. And it specifically says that participation by uh, any method like video conferencing or teleconferencing shall constitute presence in person at a meeting. They, they had to amend or they had to, uh, to add language to the Nonprofit Corporations Act and, uh, and a couple other statutes in order to get us there. And the specifics don't matter so much as the fact that that is quite clear now that presence by telephonic conference or presence by video conference counts as uh, presence in person or by proxy. So before we go on to the next issue here, does anybody have any questions about, about Washington? I, I just wanna make it clear that if you're in Washington, you can hold your annual meeting via Zoom conference. You can hold your annual meeting via conference call. Uh, you can hold your board meetings via teleconference or video conference. And the same notice requirements apply. Uh, so if you ordinarily have to give a certain amount of notice for a meeting of the owners, you still have to give that same notice. If you have to give a certain amount of notice for a board meeting, you still have to give that notice, but you can absolutely conduct your meetings via teleconference or, uh, or via video conference. So, but before we go on, can so I? Mike, we have yeah. a couple of questions that relate to Governor Inslee's order, which, and they're collections questions, but we probably ought to take them now. I put Governor Inslee's order on community associations in the chat feature. I, I did. I did too. Before we go on though, uh, can we just make sure that everybody is clear on Washington meetings? Does any, I'm scrolling through the chat feature here to see if anybody has any questions about meetings in Washington. And well, my, Michael has a question. He says, we continue to mention Zoom meetings. However, there is a tremendous digital divide. And I can see that appeal, I, I can see that many do not have video access or the ability to do a Zoom call-in. And as long as the method that you're using to allow the, uh, that, that teleconference or video conference allows people to call in, I think you're okay. So for instance, the conference we're doing now, you can either join the conference via video link that you click on your computer, or you can call in on your telephone. And as long all, as you have the, as long as you have the same ones do, Zoom, right. GoToMeeting, BlueJeans, um, Skype, you can call in as well. So basically, if you have a telephone, you can attend the meeting. And I think as long as you make that available, then uh, you're okay in terms of the concern or the issue that Michael raised here. So are there any other questions about Washington meetings as long as this order's in effect? So okay. we got a question from Jim saying we are an older Washington condo, and by that he probably means that they're not subject to Wukiowa, the new 2018 statute, and he wants to know if the rules are any different. No, so there's uh, there's three different sets of laws you could be subject to in in Washington as a condominium: the the old Condominium Act, uh, the Condominium Act, or uh, or the new Uniform Common Interest Ownership Act. It doesn't matter which one you're subject to. They amended the statute as necessary in order to do a, to address all of these. And so if you are a Washington association of any variety, whether you're a condo or a homeowner association, whether you're uh, old or new, 
same rules apply to everybody. They did a pretty good job of cleaning up all of the statutes that might have affected that issue in Washington. Now, we weren't going to talk about collections in this presentation. However, we've gotten a couple questions about waiving late fees and fines. And there's yeah. some stuff in the Washington order that you should probably talk about. Yeah, I, I will do that here. So let me pull that up. And so the, the long and the short of it is Governor Inslee's order was adopted on April 17th, and it runs through May 17th. And what the governor did, and, and there's some question in our office about whether this was constitutional or not, but you'll see- I've got this here, Jason. Okay. Okay, so uh, this is pretty straightforward. Uh, what the governor did uh, is he went through and struck out some language in both the Washington Condominium Act and Homeowners Association Act. And it's the language that allows for the imposition of late fees the language that allows for the imposition of fines for violation of, uh, of the rules. Sorry, I've got a truck going by. I'm out of my deck here. <laughs> yeah, but my apologies, folks. I'm out, of, I'm out on the deck on top of my garage because uh, there's nowhere in my house that I can escape from my children. So uh, to, go over that, to go over that again, no late fees, no fines, for violations of uh, the rules and regulations or any provision of the governing documents. No interest may be charged on late assessments. And that, that one just applies to condominiums. I'm not sure why they didn't uh, address it in the, uh, um, in the Homeowner Association Act. Uh, but that applies to both condominiums and homeowner associations, except for this no interest on late assessments. For some reason, they didn't address that in the HOA Act. But as a general matter, Right now in Washington, you cannot collect late fees for delinquent assessments. You cannot levy fines for violations of the governing documents or the rules and regulations. And in most communities, you can't uh, collect interest on late assessments either. Until May 17th. Unless or the order gets extended. The order might be extended. So this is one of those issues where you kind of got to stay tuned because the rules are changing the order uh, has its own kind of self-destruct. It says it's only in place till May 17th, but I think there's a better than 50-50 chance that he extends it. So you, you kind of got to stay tuned on that one. We did get a question from Hernando about if, if that same rule applies in Oregon, and the short answer is no. In Oregon, actually Rich's brother, who's running for Secretary of State, if you didn't know that, I mean, Mike's, uh, Mike's, brother. Mike's brother, Rich, Rich Viles, running for Secretary of State, he actually, um, I talked to him and he talked to the governor and the governor said she, at this point in time, she doesn't have any plan to do the same sort of thing in Oregon. So in Oregon, late fees, fines and interests are all okay. Now, having said that, um, there are 30 million plus people out of work right now. It's a very difficult time for a lot of folks. So what we've been telling folks is obviously you can't forgive the assessment itself, right? Everyone has to pay assessments. You still got to pay your landscaper, your manager, your insurance, all that stuff. But it is a good time for, you know, if you have somebody that's dutifully paid their assessments year in and year out, it's a good time to consider waiving uh, a late fee, waiving some interest, um, now, if you have somebody that for the last five years hasn't paid assessments, if you have a habitual offender, I wouldn't waive their interest in Oregon. You know, that, that's an ongoing issue. That has, that's not coronavirus related. 
But as you encounter people in your community that have fallen on hard times, now is, now is a really good time to consider um, waiving late fees, fines, and interest. Mike, you want to add anything? Uh, no, I, I, I just would agree with you there that, you know, as a general matter, we tend to counsel against uh, waiving those, those sorts of things unless that's just going to be your policy going forward. And we obviously would discourage you from having that policy. Uh, but we are in uh, in very unique circumstances here, and so yeah, I, I would not disagree with that. We had a a question about in the chat about where to find the order that I was just talking about in Washington. I'm going to post a link into the chat that is a, a direct link to view that order. And I already there, did, Mike. Oh, that particular order. The order and then also the website with all of the executive orders so people can check. I took care of it. Okay. Got, all right. Very good. We got a question, and I don't know if this is Oregon or Washington, but we got a question from Lance asking if the board of trust if the board of directors or trustees for his HOA can extend the waiver of interest and late fees longer than the governor's timeline. I have some thoughts about that, but do you, he he must be talking about Washington. So you want to answer that? Uh, yeah, the board has the discretion to do that. Uh, the the governor's order doesn't prohibit you from doing that after it expires. So after that governor's order expires, uh, if in your judgment you decide that you need to extend that for longer for your community, then I think the board has the discretion to do that. Now, whether that's a good idea or not, uh, I think is sort of left to the uh, the board's judgment. But yeah, you, you do have the, the discretion to do that going forward, unless your documents very, very clearly require you to impose uh, the late fees or the interest. If the documents give the board any discretion, then I think the board has the discretion. So we, um, we have a couple other questions um, and I, we can keep going, but we should probably answer some of these. So. Um, John says, we have someone in collections for two years. This is Washington. Can we continue to charge interest? Uh, I would say that uh, you, can, you can attempt to collect the interest you've charged prior to the issuance of the governor's order, but you have to stop the clock on interest during the period that the governor's order is in effect. No interest from April 17th to May 17th or whenever the governor extends the order to. Um, Marshall, Marshall's on the line. Uh, hi, Marshall. Um, wants to know if there's any restriction on filing a lien for delinquent assessments, and he wants to know the Oregon and Washington answers. In Oregon, there's no well, as you as you well know, Marshall, because you were around when some of these statutes were adopted. There's an automatic lien, right? So you don't technically have to file a paper lien, but you should to put title companies on notice, to put lenders on notice, buyers on notice. In Oregon, there's no restriction on filing a paper lien. You want to do Washington, Mike? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't believe that there's, there's no restriction in Washington on filing liens either. So you can continue to file the liens, but don't include in the lien amount any interest that the order would prohibit you from charging or any late fees. So a um, couple other questions here. Is there a simple, is there, Michael wants to know, is there a similar temporary provision for telephonic or digital meetings available in Oregon? The answer is no. We have no order from Kate Brown, our governor, 
about electronic meetings. And that's part of why I have been giving the advice I've been giving based on the Condominium Act and the Plan Community Act. Um, Actually, Jim, wants to, oh, sorry, go go ahead. Ahead. Jim wants to know, can we find later for an act during the time of the order. And I'm gonna take this one, Mike, because I, I I have a client up in Vancouver who a couple weeks ago emailed me a picture of a seven foot tall inflatable Tyrannosaurus Rex in the front lawn of a nice uh, single family home HOA. I'm not and sure it, I understand it, the problem. It was, yeah, it, it, they, they just, they had a Jurassic Park theme going on. And they said, Jason, send this person a notice imposing fines and threatening to sue for an injunction. That dinosaur has been there since October. And I said, I said a couple things, one of which was, why did it take you so long to call me if it's been there since October? But I said, look, I'm really sorry. We, I, can send, I can threaten to sue them. I can, I can send them a courtesy notice, notice telling them that fines will commence on May 18th, but we can't impose a fine right now because of the governor's order. Um, so that's kind of a long-winded answer to Jim's question, but the short answer is if someone's violating the rules, set, have your manager send them a letter, you just can't impose a fine, even if it well, began prior to the order. So let's just be clear, Jason, if we're talking about an ongoing violation, like your dinosaur, you can't impose any uh, continuing fines against the dinosaur guy during the period that this order's in effect. So if it's a daily fine that would be called for or a weekly fine that would be called for under their schedule of fines, then you can't impose that fine during the period that Governor Inslee's order is in effect. But as soon as the order is no longer in effect, if that fine is still continuing, then you can start imposing fines from that day forward for that week, that day, that month, whatever basis you're, you're imposing your fines on. If it is a, a one-off type violation, uh, like a noise violation, for example, and somebody commits that violation while Governor Inslee's order is in effect, but then doesn't commit it again after the uh, order's been lifted, then you can't levy a fine for that at all. And that's exactly what I did. I said the fine is whatever it was, $25 per week, and the first week will commence on May 18th. Hey, Jason, I'd like to address an issue real quick. Uh, this is from Aubrey. In Oregon, should HOAs still be conducting site visits for compliance violations and applying fines? I'm actually going to give the Washington answer, I, but, uh, and I'll let Jason give the Oregon answer. I think they're the same answer, though. So under the uh, original order issued by Governor Inslee, it prohibits all sorts of travel that is not essential. And the order is fairly clear that unless you are traveling to work, for some sort of essential business, or you're traveling uh, for personal business that's essential, like buying food or uh, going to care for a sick relative, you are not to travel at all. So if you have to travel in order to conduct that site visit to check for violations, so you can send your violation notices, I think under the Washington law right now, uh, you're, you're violating the order. And I would tell you, do not, make uh, site inspections for compliance reasons unless it is a true emergency. I feel a little different about that in Oregon. Um, I think Kate Brown's order really is ordering people to maintain social distance. And I, the advice that I've been giving is this is probably, you know, you, you got to talk to your employer, right? So Aubrey, you got to talk to Big Ed. 
and if Big Ed is requiring you to do compliance visits, you can do them, but you should stay in your car, right? You should, this is not a good time to be on people's lawns or walking, walking down somebody else's block. But if you, can, if you can do that while maintaining social distancing, I don't think it violates the governor's order, but um, it does cause me pause that there's such an emphasis during this time that we're all working from home if we're not essential you know, it, is it really a good idea to be doing that? I, I would tend to say no, but I don't think in Oregon it violates the governor's order. You feel differently, Mike? Well, I, I think it's debatable. So if you look at executive order uh, 20-12, which is the, the governor's order here in Oregon, um, it, it is not, it's not 100% clear that, that this would be a violation, but it does talk about uh, not leaving your home except for a handful of things that are specifically authorized. Uh, but it, it's not nearly as clear as Washington. So yeah, I, I would agree that it's not clearly a violation. It's kind of debatable though. So let's actually, that's a good point to transition to talking about um, common facilities because um, this is an area where Governor Brown's order, um, again, um, it's got a really detailed provision for um, government. It's got a really detailed provision for businesses. There's no provision, and I'm putting it in the chat feature right now, there's actually no provision for community associations. But if you think about it, um, most of your community associations are nonprofit corporations, and I think the, the business restriction applies. And if you look at the closure of certain businesses section, it's section two of the order. It closes gyms, it closes fitness studios, it closes senior activity centers, tennis clubs, it closes hookah bars. Sorry, Mike, I know you like hanging out at those. <laughs> um, you know, so the advice that I've been, been giving to folks is, you know, close your gym, close, close all of your recreational facilities. Obviously, you can't close a common element hallway in a mid-rise or high-rise, right? That's a common facility, but people need to have ingress and egress from their homes, so you can't close that. But you should close everything else. Now, I've gotten a couple interesting questions, um, one of which is tennis is a sport that inherently involves social distancing. Do we have to close our single tennis court? And I said, well, the governor's order says closure of tennis clubs. She probably meant tennis courts and clubs. But I said, but you know, my advice was, look, you know, yeah, you're always six feet away from one another unless you're, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's what's the name of the uh, '80s tennis player, Becker? Um, who was always at the net. <laughs> I was thinking John McEnroe, but either way. John McEnroe or Stefan Edberg, you know, so you're always six feet apart on the tennis court, but here's the thing. You're both touching the same tennis ball. You're both touching the doorknob to get into the tennis court. And the same thing applies for pools. I've had a couple of people close their pools and then get um, fair housing requests from owners saying, I, you know, I have a disability under the Fair Housing Act and I need to be able to access the pool and interestingly, the CDC guidelines on pools say that you can't catch COVID-19 in a properly chlorinated pool. But that's not the end of the story. What about the railing to get into the pool? What about the key fob to get into the building or the gate, right? So, I mean, you got to think about 
it not just in terms of the the technical language in the order but the practical reality of keeping your residents safe and so my advice in most situations has been to close that stock um you want to talk about i think the answer is essentially the same in washington mike but you want to talk about that a little bit yeah as far as recreational facilities go uh, it, it definitely is the same in washington um, but I, I did want to touch on something else in Washington because the uh, the Washington order is is a bit more strict in terms of social gatherings uh, or leaving your home for any purpose really. So the so Governor Inslee's original order uh, it says all people in Washington State shall immediately cease leaving their home or place of residence except to conduct or participate in essential activities or for employment in essential business services. So that's a pretty clear directive that you can't leave your home unless you're participating in an essential activity or you're leaving to, to go to work in an essential business service. It also says that all people in Washington state shall immediately cease participating in all public and private gatherings and multi-person activities for social, spiritual, and recreational purposes regardless of the number of people involved. So there's no exemptions for uh, for small meetings of three or four people where your owners just wanna come hang out in the, uh, in the lobby of the building and sit six feet apart from each other. So there's no exemption for social distancing. There's no exemption for small meetings. Uh, in short, you're really not supposed to meet with anybody that's not a member of your household in Washington unless you're doing it in connection with some sort of essential activity. And so I, I think that we have to be clear on some of this stuff. And we also have to think about when the association has an obligation to enforce uh, the governor's order and when you've got liability for not enforcing. And as a general matter, I've told associations that if you don't need to act as the, uh, the coronavirus police, don't. Uh, if you have residents at your condominium or your playing community that you believe are going from house to house or from unit to unit to hang out, I don't think the association's obligated to try and stop that, uh, even if it clearly violates the governor's order. Where I think you do have an obligation to do something in, in Washington is where people are gathering on common elements or gathering on any space that the association owns or, or controls. And in those cases, I do think that you have some obligation as a board to at least tell people not to do it. We already know you can't fine them for it because the governor says you can't. Um, can you call the police? I suppose you could. Uh, can you post notices prohibiting those gatherings? I think you can if you know they're going on. Uh, can you tell people directly what they're doing is violating the governor's order and, and demand that they stop? I think you can do that too. And I think you should do it if we're talking about gatherings on common element spaces or, uh, or common property where the association has some control because I, I know that there will be some litigation at some point against parties that had the ability to prevent people from gathering in groups and failed to exercise whatever authority they had. And so- Mike, I had this one come up recently. I have an association that has public streets and everyone's kids are driving them crazy. So the owners have been wheeling basketball hoops out into the public streets and the kids are playing basketball and not observing social distancing. This is Oregon, but what do you think about the association's liability exposure there? 
I honestly would probably tell them that they have to demand that those owners knock it off. Because in Oregon, you, uh, you can have gatherings as long as people can maintain six feet of, six feet of distance. If, uh, if an Oregon condominium had a, a lobby area where people were setting up chairs uh, six or eight feet apart and talking to each other, I don't think that would violate the order. And so, uh, so there are cases in Oregon where you could let people get away with certain things. But in your basketball example, it's been a while since I played basketball, but from what I remember, uh, there's a fair amount of contact involved. And so, so I, I do think that you'd have to address that one. Yeah, I have a I have a slightly softer viewpoint on that. I mean, my feeling, at least in Oregon, is that community associations are ill-equipped to enforce the governor's order, except I think that you have to uh, adopt policies and make decisions, particularly about common areas that you own or have control over, with an eye towards compliance with the governor's order. I think if you're policy making with regard to common hallways, common, you know, you know, pools, rec facilities, if you shut those down and people are still violating social distancing, I think you've gone, you know, to about as, I think you've gone about as far as you can go to mitigate your liability. Um, you know, it's it's a judgment call whether you want to call the police on your on the neighbor kids who are violating the social distancing requirements. I probably wouldn't do that. I'd probably call up my neighbor and say, you know, is it really a good idea for your kids to be playing basketball? They're playing like the 92 Detroit Pistons or like Mike Vile. You know, this is not, you know, around the world where everyone's six feet away from one another. Um, and I know that the Portland police, although they technically have the authority to find people for violating social distancing, they've taken a softer approach. I mean, they really, they, they're trying to educate people. At least that's what they're, they say they're doing. Um, so a couple more questions. Should we, should we keep plowing through, Mike, or you want me to do a couple more questions? There's lots no, of let's, questions. Let, let's take some of these questions. Uh, the last one that popped up um, uh, in Washington, if people cannot use the common spaces in a Washington HOA, can members ask for a refund on their assessments? Uh, the answer is no, they, they can't. Uh, there's no right of offset uh, under Washington law for not being able to use common amenities or, uh, or common facilities. Well, for any reason, really. It could be because those facilities are damaged and unavailable. It could be because the governor's uh, not, uh, not allowing people to use them. But the fact is that all of those things must still be paid for out of common expenses. And so if the association still has a common expense, then all of the owners still have to share in paying that common expense. So the, the short answer is no, nobody gets a rebate on their assessments because the common amenities aren't available. Yeah, there's no offset. And, and in Oregon, there's actually a section in the Condo Act and the Plain Community Act that says um, that the association's failure to keep common facilities open is not grounds for an offset against your assessments. I don't know the answer to that one in Washington, but I would assume that the, the rule is the same. We got a couple it's, really, really good ones here, but go ahead, Mike. Well, I was gonna say, yes, it, it is the same. Um, there's no specific statute that addresses it, but it's the same rationale. And, and I, would, uh, I would feel quite confident telling any manager or board member that they aren't obligated to give a, a rebate or an assess or a, a discount on assessments. All right, couple really good questions. Okay, so Karen, 
she says, our bylaws specify the day on which we have to hold the annual meeting. Can we hold it in a parking lot at the clubhouse, which will accommodate quorum and will allow social distancing? So there's a lot to unpack there. I'll do Oregon, then you do Washington. So um, I have, I've had several associations that specify either the date or the month that the annual meeting must occur. And I've had folks not want to postpone. And the advice that I've given is I would rather have a technical violation of the governor's order than have you violate social distancing. So um, if you can postpone an annual meeting, do. This is just my feeling. Mike may feel differently. Um, if you if you can't or your board won't postpone the annual meeting, then do it via Zoom and follow the steps that I talked about. Now, the second part of your question was, can we hold it in a parking lot at the clubhouse, which will allow the Oregon required social distancing? I love this question because um, I'm a lawyer and lawyers are inherently a little cynical, but you obviously have so much more faith in the residents in your community than I would. The legal answer to that question is yes. If you can ensure social distancing, then you can do it. But the practical answer is, can you really make sure that everyone's staying six feet apart? And do you have some elderly or immune compromised residents where you would be concerned about their safety even if they were six feet apart? And can you trust people's kids that may tag along with them to the meeting because all the daycare facilities in Oregon are closed except to essential workers? Can you trust those kids to maintain social distancing? So Karen, the legal answer is yes, you can do that. But I think the practical answer is I would not do that. And I've had, you know, with regard to the, to the meeting date in your bylaws, I think you can postpone anyway. I think I, I have a hard time seeing a judge penalize you for trying to protect people's safety. Mike, you feel differently? Uh, no, I agree with all that in Oregon. Uh, if you want to go uh, put down tape in your parking lot six feet apart, uh, little X's and make people stand on the X's and have your annual meeting, I think you could do that without violating the law. You definitely cannot do that in Washington without violating the law, so don't do it. And in Washington, you have the clear alternative of holding a meeting by video conference or teleconference. Use that uh, option instead. Uh, so yeah, Jason, I, uh, I agree with you on that one. Uh, Julie, let me get your question real quick and then, uh, then we can hit some of the other ones that just popped up. Uh, your question is, contractors have been allowed to go back and work, go back to work in Washington. The workers will be congregating on common area. Is that a violation of the order? So uh, the short answer is, Yes, the governor just recently issued another proclamation clarifying the circumstances under which contractors could get back to work to perform construction. Uh, prior to this most recent order, it was only for, uh, for true structural emergencies. Now it's pretty much any construction work is, is gonna be authorized, but there are some very strict rules in place about how the contractors have to interact with each other on site. Uh, they're required to avoid having any sort of choke points on site where people would be walking past each other or forced to stand next to each other. And if they can't perform the construction work without practicing social distancing, they're still prohibited from doing it in Washington. So short answer, yes, your construction project can go forward as long as your contractor can practice appropriate social distancing. And there's a very detailed policy that the governor's issued in order to prevent 
people from congregating in those common spaces. So has he rolled back, I don't actually know the answer to this, has Inslee rolled back that opinion that he issued on March 25th saying, you know, because first he prohibited all construction because it's non-essential. Then he rolled it back with that opinion saying that you could do construction if it was to prevent spoliation, avoid damage or unsafe conditions or do an emergency repair. Yes. Is that still in place? No. So on April 24th, Inslee issued uh, the phase one construction restart uh, and uh, it references a set of guidelines that a, uh, that a committee came up with uh, called the Construction Roundtable that outlines exactly how the contractors are allowed to interact with each other on site. So yeah, that, or that original order and, and the second order have both been rolled back. Uh, construction is now open for business as long as you can comply with these phase one construction restart job site requirements. We got another interesting question. It's, it's Oregon, but we'll do Oregon and Washington. So Delan says, we have a dead end trail through our common area, but there's a public access easement across the trail. And she says, folks can't practically practice social distancing, especially with unaccompanied children. Do, can we close the trail down? I think in Oregon, the answer is, if there's a public access easement, you can't close it down. I would post some signage though, and uh, you can close down your common area that isn't subject to the easement, but if, if, uh, if, if there's a public access easement, I don't think you can close it down. Same answer for Washington. Uh, so let me address this, uh, this question that Michael asked uh, regarding uh, Washington condominiums and requiring residents to wear masks or gloves when in common areas. So I've had this question a handful of times, uh, especially in high-rise condominiums, where boards or managers have called me and said, can we make all of our residents wear masks or gloves uh, or some other sort of protective equipment while they're in common areas or before they touch any doorknobs or elevator buttons? My answer on that one has been no, you, you can't compel the owners to, to do that. I, I don't think that the governor's order addresses that at all. Your governing documents certainly don't address your ability to compel owners to wear protective equipment. While it might be a good policy and it might be a, uh, an advisable thing to do, I don't think that a Washington board has the authority to impose that requirement on your owners. And even if you did have the authority to impose it, you don't really have the, uh, the ability to find anybody for violating it right now. Uh, so I think that's one where if, there's a, if that issue comes up, and one of your boards asks you about it, I think you tell them that you can post signs strongly encouraging people to wear gloves or masks. You can't require it though. Now that applies no. to residents, Mike. Part of Claire's question was whether she can require contractors to wear masks. And I think the answer to that is yes. I would I agree. Think that, uh, you know, I've seen in some construction contracts I've looked at recently, I've seen some interesting um, COVID-19 clauses. I mean, the the practical reality is that OSHA is out on the prowl, and I'm sure the Washington equivalent of OSHA is out on the prowl, looking for contractors that are, are not doing a good job of social distancing and not wearing PPE. Um, but I, I would write that into the contract, and I would ask the contractor before you sign the contract what their practices are. I'll tell you, 
I'm working on a construction defect case in a mid-rise building right now, and I had to do a site visit last week, and I didn't even have to go into anybody's unit. I was just in hallways, and I was on the roof, and I wore a mask the whole time, um, just, you know, not only for my safety, but, you know, for, for everyone else's safety. I, I think as a society, we're going to see kind of some social pressure to wear masks. Um, yeah, in fact, there was a I, great article in the New York Times about it yesterday. I would agree with that, Jason. I think if the association has the authority to uh, prohibit somebody from coming onto the property, period, or to restrict the ways in which people come onto the property, they can require them to wear masks. So in this case, if we're talking about a construction project that the association has any sort of control over, uh, even if it's a construction project inside of somebody's unit that had to get ARC approval, or if the association has general rules regarding uh, how contractors can access the site to work on units, then yeah, no question, you can require contractors to wear masks. I did, I did want to briefly address Michael's comment. Michael um, uh, put a citation in the chat feature maybe 10 minutes ago um, to the um, the public meetings requirement in ORS 192, and that's actually the public meetings requirement for um, municipal and county governments, which in many, and, and they have a much better provision on electronic meetings than we have in the Condominium Act or the Planned Community Act. And in fact, certain portions of our open meetings requirement are modeled after the public open meetings requirement, but HOAs are private. They're a creature of your CCNRs or your declaration. So as a technical matter, 192 does not apply to condos or HOAs, um, but I think that it's a really good thing to point out because generally when judges look at whether an association has violated the open meetings requirement in the Condo Act or the Planned Community Act, the best analogy, the best analog is to look at municipal and local government. And so, I think what you're going to see is, is if, if these meetings get challenged, the court is going to look to statutes like 192 and say, you know what, the board was doing the best they could to have an open meeting and include all of the owners in light of the governor's order. So I'm, glad, I'm really glad you brought that up. Okay, should we do more questions, Mike? Uh, Michael Callis, um, asked a couple questions, um, one of which, number three, we already answered. Um, uh, I, th I, think we've, I think we've got them all here. Uh, well, number, th number three, we haven't fully answered. So we answered the first couple. Uh, basically, you can't compel your residents to wear uh, masks or gloves. Uh, and the third one here, we've talked about that a bit, but it is, is it advisable or permissible to have a rule for vendors and visitors to the community, but not for the residents themselves. And the answer on that one, in my opinion, is if you have any control over vendors coming onto the property, period, then I think that you can have different rules for vendors and residents, but that's gonna be really specific to your project. Um, as a general matter, you can't treat people's guests or invitees any different than you treat residents uh, if we're talking about family members for example uh, vendors are, are a bit of a different animal uh, that's that's commercial activity that i think the association has some authority to regulate but it is going to be specific to your community and i think in a lot of cases 
yeah, you could require vendors to do things that you're not requiring your res residents to do, like making contractors wear masks, making delivery people wear masks. Those are all rules that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't have any real concern about you adopting. So should we talk about owner communication a little bit, Mike? Or are there other questions that you saw in the chat that you wanted to address? I, I think we've hit most of the questions in the chat. Yeah, let's talk about owner communication, Jason. Why don't you go ahead with that? So you and I actually haven't really talked about this. I'll tell you the advice that I've been giving folks and the experience that I had, and you can tell me what you think. But I've been kind of approaching this from two different perspectives. I think there's the communication that goes out community-wide. And then I think there's the communication that you have with an owner that has COVID-19. And I've had several associations where an owner has self-reported to the board that they have COVID-19. And I even have one association where someone died of COVID-19. And so, um, you know, if you've checked your email in the last six weeks, you've gotten a million COVID-19 emails from your kid's daycare, your kid's school, your gym, you know, I, I think that we're all inundated with this information to the point where if you've heard nothing from your HOA, your typical resident, and you've heard nothing, you're probably more concerned than if you got an email and didn't read it carefully. <laughs> so, um, you know, a couple pointers about a community-wide communication. Um, I think that you should talk about you know, it's easy to link the CDC guidelines. It's easy to tell folks, don't touch your face, don't, you know, wash your hands. But um, especially in condominium buildings, mid-rises, high-rises, you have a lot of high contact surfaces, right? Elevator buttons, door handles, um, you know, into the lobby or concierge area. Uh, you, have, you have you have hand railings even in a in a uh, you know split level condo where you know people walk up the stairs to get in their units. There are hand railings. You know if you are doing stepped up cleanings, you should tell the owners that you're doing stepped up cleanings. Similarly, if you can't afford or it's not practical to do stepped up cleanings, I think it's okay to tell owners, look, we can only clean that handrail once a week and people touch that handrail all the time. So assume, you know, those are high contact surfaces. Assume that you need to wash your hands before you touch your face, right? Um, you know, you, you can talk about wearing masks. You can make a suggestion, although as Mike said, you can't require people to wear masks in common areas. And then you should, of course, communicate um, that you've closed recreational facilities. That's controversial. Some owners complain about that. Hey, I'm cooped up in my condo. I can't go to the gym. We're really sorry, but the governor's order, which we gave you a link to, mandates closure of gyms, spas, recreational facilities. So I think all of that stuff is good to communicate to your residents. And this is not legal advice. This is just sort of practical advice, but there are a lot of anxious uh, people out there right now. People are cooped up in their house with their kids. Some folks have job instability. Some folks have food instability, right? And I always like to end a communication like that on a positive note, right? Um, we're all in this together. We're doing the best job we can to protect the safety of our residents, but you need to do your part to, you know, protect your own safety and your family's safety. So that's that's so, association-wide communication. I'll let Mike talk, and then we'll talk about if an owner self-reports. 
Yeah, I, I don't have any any uh, disagreement with you on the the communication issue. Um, real quick though, we've got a couple more questions here. I'd like to just hit. Uh, okay. And then we also we also have a bunch of questions that came in before the meeting that we can work through. Uh, and oh. and some, of, some of them are really good. So, but let's address these two that just came in on the chat. So the first one is, our HOA is going to vote on becoming a smoke-free building. Can we conduct the vote on this change through the uh, HOA uh, vote software with paper ballots for those who don't have computer access? Yes, and that doesn't matter whether you're in Oregon or Washington. Uh, you can always vote on a change to the governing documents via, uh, via paper ballots in Washington and in Oregon. Uh, normally in Washington, you would need to have the authority to do that in your governing documents, but under the governor's order right now, you can definitely do it by, by electronic means. And you can always do it in Oregon by electronic means, whether your go governing documents uh, allow you to do it or not, or specifically authorized or not. So uh, the short answer is yes, you can do that, proceed. Uh, the second one here is, will the answer regarding masks and common spaces change if the government makes it a requirement in public spaces? That I think is a pretty good question. And uh, the HOA, it's, I, it's I would not say, a public space. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I would, it depends on how they define public space because technically your say, common areas I, are private property. Yeah, I would wait to see what the order actually says uh, because I think that is going to be the determining factor. I did want to say about Marion's comment about electronic voting. Um, for the smoke, the, the smoking amendment, when we started talking about um, not making these sorts of critical decisions in a meeting, I mentioned this vote by written ballot in lieu of a meeting procedure. And Marion, what you're describing is exactly that procedure. You send out a notice, you distribute ballots, you can do a vote by written ballot in lieu of a meeting, it can be a written ballot or electronic ballot. And that's really the right way to do that sort of community-wide vote right now. All right, so Jason, let's let's hit a couple of questions that came in. Uh, yeah, we're the, uh, the we're at twelve thirty, but okay. I'm happy to keep going for another you know ten fifteen minutes if you are. Yeah, let's let's and just folks, uh, folks can just drop off when they're tired of hearing us talk. <laughs> okay, all right, yeah, let's let's try and do another uh, another ten minutes here. So uh, one question we had here. Uh, involved second homes. So we've got a coast community where some of the homes are second homes. Uh, the city has requested that people not use their second homes at the coast if uh, if they you know can avoid it at all. Does the association have an obligation to police that? Uh, my answer to that question is no. Uh, even if you know it's somebody's second home, you don't know what their circumstances are at the other home. They might be using the second home in order to uh, separate themselves from somebody who is potentially at risk. I wouldn't get involved in, in that decision. We've had a bunch of questions about the association's obligation. Well, hang on. I just okay. got this question last night. Okay. Were you going to differ take on this? Clatsa, slightly. Clatsa okay. County um, has shut down all short-term rentals for like condo hotels and um, they've shut all of that down through May 31st or as long as they extend the order, although hotels are still open for essential travel. But my take on this is if it's just a second home, you don't get to tell an owner where they stay home. If they have two homes, they can choose to self-isolate in their second home. And, and so I just wanted to say that. 
Yeah. And, you know, the the city probably doesn't have the authority to tell them that either. But even if they do, uh, it's not the association's business. I've had a bunch of questions, both uh, in the, the questions we received prior to this uh, this session here and, and also just in general about what the association's obligation is to uh, provide cleaning materials and to ensure that common spaces are cleaned in order to avoid potentially exposing folks. So uh, does the HOA have to hire a contractor to run around and wipe everything down every 20 minutes? Does the HOA have to put Lysol wipes out? Uh, does the HOA have to give every owner a gallon of bleach? Um, and my, my answer to all of these is, I don't think the association has any obligation to do any of these things. You certainly don't have the obligation to provide any sort of, uh, of disinfectant or protective materials to owners or guests or anybody else. Now I the companion question to that is, if somebody catches COVID-19 from a railing in our building, can we be held liable? <laughs> right. And, you know, those are going to be interesting cases. And I guarantee we're going to have some. I, out of an abundance of caution, I've been encouraging associations that have a lot of high contact services to do extra cleaning. But I think that it's, uh, I, I'm pretty dubious of the idea that any association is going to have any liability at the end of the day for somebody catching COVID-19 because they're gonna have an impossible time proving where they caught that. Uh, if somebody gets sick, they can't prove they got it from your elevator button. And so I, I don't think that the association's ultimately gonna be liable on any of that, but it's not gonna hurt anything to do some extra cleaning. What I've been telling, I totally agree. I think it's impossible to meet your burden of proof because the incubation period for COVID-19 is so long you're never going to be able to prove that you got it from a railing as opposed to the packaging for the takeout that you had delivered to your house on Postmates. So I totally agree with the liability um, piece. With regard to the cleanings, I've had some clients say, how often should we clean? Um, I've had other clients say, we don't have any money to clean. And I think the practical reality is you can clean a surface and it only takes one other person touching that surface to, to make the cleaning essentially useless. And so I think in the real world, legal advice aside, if you can afford stepped up cleanings to your high contact surfaces, do them and tell owners that you're doing them. If you can't afford or it is simply not practical, you know, put up a sign that says, wash your hands when you get in your house. We're really sorry, but our budget does not allow for us to do stepped up cleanings. Put hand sanitizer in the concierge lounge, but whatever you're doing, tell folks so that they know this is, you know, this is a high contact surface and I better wash my hands. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. So uh, another one I wanted to hit real quick here, uh, the question involved, what do we do once the stay at home orders are lifted? Uh, but there is still some ongoing social distancing requirements or, or even recommendations. Uh, what, what should we do at that point? Uh, and my answer Stay to this- tuned. we'll do another one of these. <laughs> yes, that's, that's basically my answer. We don't know what direction any of this stuff is going. We don't know what sort of orders are gonna be imposed by the states going forward. And we're learning more about this, uh, this virus, you know, by the day or, or by the week. And so we just don't know yet what good policy is going to be in a month or two months or three months from now. 
I will say, you know, my uh, for the uh, you know my sister uh, works for Kaiser, and she's sort of knee deep in the coronavirus stuff. And her her opinion, at least, is that Oregon has done a fantastic job. Um, now we're a little luckier than New York and the East Coast because we we had a little extra lead time to respond. Um, but none of us really know the answer to that question. I am, while Mike takes the next question, I'm going to post the link to the Oregon Health Department dashboard on COVID-19. It's probably the best single resource I've seen for statistics on the curve, right? We all know what the curve is, um, but go ahead, Mike. Well, so I'll answer the last question that came in in chat. It's, uh, our HOA arranges dumpsters in the spring and fall to be brought into the neighborhood for homeowners to tidy up yards after winter and fall leaf drop. Should this be canceled? Um, I don't think that you have to cancel it. I think that you could bring a dumpster in, you could put out a protocol of some kind to your owners that says, uh, if somebody's at the dumpster dumping their leaves, stay 10 feet back before you go dump your leaves. And, and I don't think you'd be violating any orders in Oregon or Washington by doing that. Agreed. Okay. Now let's let's uh, well you're still looking for that link, Jason. Let's hit a, a couple other questions here. Um, let's see. Actually, I'll tell you what. I think I've addressed all of them that I wanted to address from the uh, from the pre-submitted questions. Does anybody on the conference have any questions that we haven't addressed yet? Okay. Now, if you're going to talk. I see some of you starting to talk. You can't do that until you unmute your your microphone. So hit the uh, hit the microphone. There you go, uh, Rhonda. You had it. Uh, then you lost it. Okay, go ahead. Oh, we, we can't we hear you, Rhonda. You, Rhonda. You're still on mute. Maybe type your question into the chat. Yeah, for some reason you're we, we can't hear you there, Rhonda. Okay, does anybody else have any questions? Uh, Rhonda, you might want to just type yours in. Yes, Holly, go. My one of my boards would like to um, stop deliveries, like large deliveries of furniture to the building, and I just don't feel like that sh is permissible to stop someone's life like that. What do you? What is your take on that? I, I had a very similar issue. I have a condo where um, somebody rented their unit to someone who was moving out from New York and the board wanted to prevent the person from moving in, right? Because they were worried that they were a vector from COVID-19. And I told them, you can't prohibit them from moving in, but you can, you can tell them, look, um, let us know what your movers are gonna do for PPE and we designated a specific elevator for them to use. This was a building with multiple elevators. And then we disinfected the elevator. But, but um, I tend to agree with you, Holly. I, I don't think you can prevent somebody from getting furniture delivered or food delivered. Um, people have a right to come in and out of their unit and have their invitees, right? Mike used that term earlier, come in and out of their unit. But I think you can put some reasonable restrictions on their use of the common areas, the hallways, right? Just like we always do. Move in, moves out. You would designate an elevator, you put up the bumpers. If they damage the hallway, we can right. charge them for that. We can we can assess them for that. 
but I don't think you can flat prohibit it. Mike, what do you think? Uh, I, you definitely can't prohibit move in or, or move out. Uh, I agree that the, uh, the smart thing to do here is to impose some restrictions or some requirements for how that's conducted. Whether you could prohibit the delivery of non-essential items, like some owner decided they just wanted new furniture and they want it right now, uh, can we prohibit somebody from delivering that furniture? I think in theory, maybe you could. I, I don't think that's a policy you want to try and enforce, though. So I, I would recommend that you you tell them that that's, uh, that that's not a good idea at this point. So Rhonda's question was, what about using SurveyMonkey for voting on issues at the annual meeting in Oregon other than elections and the tax resolution? So I don't know what SurveyMonkey is. I, it, uh, it sounds, you know, it sounds interesting. I, the service that I recommend is online free survey things. Right. So I, I, I usually recommend a service called Vote HOA Now, uh, which is one that has been set up in a way to comply with the law in Oregon and Washington. Uh, and I'd, I'd recommend that you use that instead. The SurveyMonkey, um, for what, whether it's got appropriate security uh, built into it. And so or without knowing more about Kathy. the service, I can say. Kathy works for Vote HOA now, and she's on the line. She, um, yeah, she just said Vote HOA now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that's probably the, the better way to go. So Mike, we, we have a couple questions from Karen and Marion about what if an owner self-reports that they have COVID-19 and our HOA subject to HIPAA? I'll take this if you want. So I've had a couple associations where owners have self-reported that they have COVID-19. And you know, I, you, you, it's natural, it's human to wanna to ask some questions. And I spent a bunch of time with, um, with this particular board developing a set of questions that I thought was safe. Um, associations are not subject to HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Medical providers, doctors, nurses, MAs, PAs, and interestingly, insurance companies are subject to HIPAA. But that's not the end of the story. I think that you do, if, if you ask these questions, which I'll rattle off to you in a moment, and the owner answers them, and, and it's purely voluntary on their part, they don't have to tell you anything about their health if they don't want to. I think you have a responsibility to keep their identity confidential. And I think um, part of that responsibility may be a fair housing issue. Covered um, under the fair housing statutes include things like rheumatoid arthritis, post-traumatic stress disorder, someone has a plegic. Most of these are chronic physical, mental, or emotional ailments. And COVID-19, awful as it is, deadly as it is, is not a chronic ailment. Um, but we don't know whether it's covered by the Fair Housing Act or not. And so I've been encouraging people to treat it like it was covered by the Fair Housing Act and, and go to lengths to preserve folks' confidentiality. Plus, you don't want somebody that's quarantining, that's recovering from the virus, to be shunned by their neighbors uh, after they recover, right? <laughs>
So um, the questions that my that this particular client asked, and I thought that they were good questions, were have you notified the appropriate health authorities? Okay, reasonable question. You know, they started out by saying, look, we'd, we'd really love for you to answer these questions. We will, we will do everything we can to keep, maintain your confidentiality. Please let us know if we can share the answers to these questions with the other homeowners in the building, um, recognizing that we will preserve your confidentiality. And in fact, in this particular case, the owner said, sure, share my answers. Just don't tell them who I am. So have you notified the appropriate health authorities? Are you complying with all guidance and protocols um, pertaining to social isolation? Um, do you know the date of the onset of the virus for you or the date of the exposure? Have you notified other residents in the building who you came in close contact with that, that you've you know, contracted the virus? All reasonable questions. Then there's one question that, you know, there's always one question that's a little out there. How do you feel about identifying what floor you are on? <laughs> and that's the question that I was kind of like, what are you going to do with that information? Are you going to scare all the people that are on that floor? Um, the owner actually uh, agreed to provide that information and we provided it to the owners, and, you know, confidentially. Um, but that was the one question that I kind of felt might be taking it a bit far. And I think we're gonna see more of this. I mean, if the curve flattens and we have fewer infections, great. Um, if we have another resurgence in the fall, like we did with the 1918 flu, like a lot of you know, medical and health experts think that we might, then we may have to address this issue again. And I just wanted to bring it up. Um, All right, Jason, uh, why don't you enter your contact information in the chat? I, I just entered mine. Uh, and I'll take uh, any any final questions here while uh, while Jason's putting his contact info in. Anybody? All right. Uh, well, I really appreciate everybody coming. Uh, I hope that uh, that you've uh, you've learned something here. I think that we are far from done with these issues. Uh, as Jason pointed out, going forward, we're likely to have some kind of resurgence here, whether that results in a stay-at-home order or not is, is hard to say, but even if it doesn't, there are gonna be continuing questions about how do we protect vulnerable people in our community and what sort of information are we obligated to share and what sort of uh, steps are we required to take in order to, uh, in order to do whatever we can to protect our residents. And the fact is we just don't know yet. And as the situation evolves, we'll give whatever guidance we can but in the meantime, uh, good luck out there and, and stay safe. And I think I can speak for Mike when I say that, you know, when there is a partial reopening or when the rules change significantly, we will do another one of these. So stay tuned. And thank you all. All right. Thanks, everybody.